Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, it's an absolute honour to have this person in the beach shack. Now, he's run marathons, he's run half marathons, he's run the 1500, the 5k, 10k, he's pretty much done everything, cross countries, and amazing achievements along the way. Andrew Lloyd is in the beach shack, and I'm so excited to have a chat to him, especially about that magnificent run in the Commonwealth Games. It's something that you should Google and look at because it is an incredible run to come from behind and to win the Commonwealth Games in the five kilometre event. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Lloydie. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a great privilege to have uh, this guy who has been a legendary runner throughout his career, Andrew Lloyd. Lloydie, how are you, mate? G'day, Hippo. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> good, mate. Now, we'll start off. I see you, you were born in England originally. So how was that? Were you there for long growing up? No, no. You can tell by my accent that <laughs> I have no English accent whatsoever. We came out when I was five, and that was it, really. It came the 10-pound poms on the plane and uh, the two kids, and then we went to Mooney Ponds in Melbourne and lived there until I was just before high school. Right. And then we moved to Pitwater. Okay, the, uh, up on the northern yeah. beaches of Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went to school with Tom Carroll and that. Yeah, we're all Pitwater boys. It's <laughs> 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 going back a while, though. It's going back a few years. So growing up, did you have any inkling of of being a runner did you enjoy running when you were a kid or that's just something that came on later in life it came on later in life because i played no sport whatsoever i used to get in trouble my mum used to offer me five dollars to run the school cross country for for, for one i got the five bucks (laughs) so that's how it started but i did a little bit of training by myself and we went out to the zone cross country once i was a year younger than the, the open I ran faster than they did, and I won by two and a half minutes. So this teacher from another school, Stuart McNeil, you might know him, he was in the surf life saving. Uncle Stu, I think he used to call himself, changed his name to London Jones later on. I had no, no, no idea why. <laughs> anyway, he decided to coach me, and he used to come to my place, open the door, drag him out at six in the morning, and we run 8K. And that's how it all started. Oh, crazy. Did you enjoy the running then? Or that was something that you, you knew you were probably good at it at that stage if you were winning, but, you know, was yeah. it something that you enjoyed? First it was hard work because I wasn't used to it. Mm. And then I started enjoying it because then you start winning and, you know, and it was easier, a lot easier to, for running and that. So, yeah, it was one of those things where you just progress from one area to the next and move up in the, up in the world. So how was the train? I mean, back then the training is not as scientific as it is today, where everyone's on, uh, you know, heart rate monitors and and they know the, the Garmin watches and they know what they're doing every five seconds. So, 
Tell us a bit about those days, though. You really only had a, a start and stop, didn't you, on the, the clock? Basically, that was it. <laughs> you did some speed work to a stopwatch, but you never took your heart rate or you never took lactate uh, samples or anything like that. You did none of that. It was just all, and even the nutrition in those days, there wasn't any. Your people took gluconate or coke or something, you know, it just didn't work. <laughs> so that's all That's all changed now. Did, did you get a feeling within your body, though, once you got used to running, that sort of what time you were roughly doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. My coach, when I went to, um, moved to uh, Canberra, went to the Institute of Sport, and I had uh, Dick Telford as a coach, and he had told me to run a 55-second 400. I could run it without a watch and get 55 seconds. But, that's because you day, day day in day out seven days a week you're always training, so you get to you know how your body works and your heart rate. You can feel it even in those days when we wanted to get a lactate or a blood thing. You had to spike yourself and take a blood, and you wouldn't get it back for two days. <laughs> Nowadays it's instantaneous, and same with your heart rate monitors. We had to strap these things on our chest and everything. It was just a pain in the butt. <laughs> now, what about the uh, the, the training? Did because obviously you've done. A lot of different distances. Was there a favourite distance that you'd like doing? Uh, I scoped all the distances. I've got national titles from 1500 to the marathon and everything in between except for that silly event called the uh, steeplechase. <laughs> <laughs> I, gave, I gave that a wide berth. I think I, ha- having a look back at everything, I should have been a 1500 runner. I started as an 800 runner at school. I won the state all schools, but they took a private school kid instead. No, I bugger this, I'm going to run marathons. <laughs> <laughs> and later on in life, I came back to the shorter stuff like the 1500s. And, you know, I won a national title in 1500 at 33 or something mm. of age. Uh, yeah, it's going back a while. <laughs> so you're saying you're doing all different distances. Mm. Did your training vary for depending whether you're coming up to do a marathon or, or it was all basically very similar? Uh, no, you you do Pacific types of training. You you up your speed work for the shorter distances, and for the longer stuff, you did your longer runs and tempo runs. So it varied. Yeah, you have done a lot of marathon races. What was your 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 best one in the marathon? I ran uh, two fourteen in the Australian titles. I was the first Australian home. Uh, American beat me, and we had the Kenyans and the the Tanzanians behind us. Um, that was in 1984, but that was probably my last real marathon I ran. I had a car accident after that in 85, yep. which, you know, I broke the ankle bone off and lost my wife in a car accident and had to start back from scratch again. And it was a pretty hard way to go, but I just couldn't run the marathon, so just the body couldn't take it. So that's where I started getting back into the speed stuff. Right. And I was going to touch on that. How... Because, I mean, a lot of people listen to this, this uh, podcast and, and life's a beach, it's also a bitch. You know, everyone yeah. goes through a tough time uh, right. in their life. No matter who you are, you, you, yeah. you get a tough ride. Now, that was probably as tough as you could possibly get. Now, how did you get yourself through that? Did running help that after that accident? Well, like I said, I was a national title over 5, 10 and marathon at the same time before that accident. And then, uh, you know, you, you come through an, a horrific car accident where they cut you out of the car and all that and you're in hospital for six weeks or whatever and then uh, the surgeon comes and tells you you're never going to run again well it's a bit of a blow but I thought you know my arm was hanging off it was held together with a nerve so they decided to keep it 
but they had to fuse it. They were going to fuse it in eating position. And I said, no, nah, fuse it in running position. We'll never go. And I had an ankle the size of a football. <laughs> so it was a real strange situation. But I don't know, when you've been running at a top level or whatever, you've got that tenacity where you, no, I'm going to have a go at it, no matter what. So, and that's what happened. So you got your arm fused in, in, in the, the position to, so you could be able to run. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, my mates used to take the piss out of me. They'd give me a beer in my left hand, and my right hand, and hold my left hand, and I couldn't get a beer to my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so from the car accident, you also lost your wife. So, yeah. I mean, geez, it must have been uh, some tough times and, and dark times in that period. Yeah, it was, but... I still consider myself lucky for some reason because I knew what happened to my wife. I knew I lost Lynn. I knew where she was. And there's people who lose people and they don't even know where they are. Mm-hmm. Also, okay, I've got a, a broken ankle, arm hanging off, but there's people who's not going to be able to walk or talk or go blind or whatever. And I thought, you know, even my own, I've gone down so far, but there's always somewhere worse off than you. Mm-hmm. And that's how I looked at it. That's a great perspective to have on life. Now, when... You got out of hospital, and then how long was it when the doctors have said, oh, you're not going to run again? Like, how long before you thought, nah, damn it, I'm going to go out and have a run? Well, I used to go and watch the guys train at the athletic track in Canberra, and when they go out to do the warm down, this is probably, you know, two months after my car accident, about a month and a half after getting out of hospital or whatever. Well, I think I was in hospital for six weeks, actually. When they buggered off out the track, no one was around, so I hopped on the track and tried to run 400 metres. You know, I could kick down and run a 52, 53 second, 400 in the race, whatever. I ran about oh, 200 and it took me, oh, must have been a minute. <laughs> and then I finally got around. And, but I did, again, I had that positive attitude where it can't get any worse than this. And it didn't. It got better. And like 13 months after my car accident, I won the City to Surf again for the third time with pins and bolts in my ankle. Well, that's coming up again soon, the City to Surf. Mm. Obviously, I'm from down there at Bondi and we get to watch the finish every year. How's that race? Because there's a lot of hills. Mm. Um, It's roughly around, what, 14 kilometres. You know, how um, difficult is that? And there's been some great runners over the years that have done that. Yeah, well, Bondi, actually, I was living in Bondi when I won it once. I was living at Campbell Parade back in 83 and 84, so that was good. And I was an honorary member of the uh, North Bondi Surf Club, so I used to book a table. <laughs> and that's going back. And then they'll have Mr. Jones, Mr. De- and then they'll have my sign, Lordy's and Table. <laughs> so I used to bring a lot of drunks with me. But, yeah, but the city to surf, getting back to the city to surf, that's probably one of the toughest races you can win. It's a fast race, but it's a hill race, so it's very hard to uh, kick down and everything. So, yeah, it's probably the toughest race you can win in the country. And what about some of the uh, competitors that you've competed against? What, who do you, have you found that, that was the toughest to, to race oh, against? There was always a couple there. Monos, you know, on the track he was a sitting duck for me, but on the road I was a sitting duck for him. Same with uh, Degasella. <laughs> You know, he was a sitting duck on the track, but on the road, they'd have more wins over me on the road and I'll have more wins over the track. So that's how it went. <laughs> we each have our own little domain where we were king at that sort of area. So you found the track a, a bit easier than, than the road? Yeah. I, I, look, I did the road season over in the States. I was ranked number three in the States for a little while running road races. Yeah, what do you call it? The the big one over in San Francisco, the Beta Breakers and all that. All that, they had a big running circuit. So I did well in them. But I was better at the track. 
And how'd you find running against like all the Kenyans and Ethiopians? And, and I mean, they were uh, quite good during your era. Yeah, yeah. But uh, like in the States, in some of those races, I'd have Arturo Barrios, the Mexican guy, he was a world record holder for 10K. I finished second behind him, and there'd be a half a dozen Kenyans behind us. That's going back. And then over in Tokyo with the Japanese cross country, international cross country. I won that, and there was all, all everyone else from every other country was there behind me. So I held up, and we used to do the Ekaden relays over in Japan, and Australia beat the Kenyans and the English and everyone else. <laughs> we won that one year, so that was good, with Monas in the team as well. So they were always tough, but, yeah, on your day you could get them. What about uh, when you first made the Olympic team? What was that feeling like? Oh, good. It was. Uh, I was happy. But I'm making us jump through hurdles and stuff, you know. <laughs> Their policy was trying to keep people out of the team, not in the team. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't get on with the AA very well, actually. <laughs> I didn't like what they did to athletes half the time. I stood up to them a couple of times. And I eventually they said, oh, you'll never make a team again. Yeah, so, and I didn't after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's gonna, a shame yeah. about a lot of sport, isn't it? It's, it's a lot of politics yeah. come into it. Oh, yeah, it was politics and they moved the bar a, a number of times. So, but even you know, after my car accident with the, uh, the the insurance claim, Athletics Australia had two expert witnesses against me, saying I would never make a runner. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I had to put up with. Yeah. Even my best mate, well, one of my running friends from Melbourne, uh, was Ron Clark's son, Marcus. He was uh, on the opposing side, helping the bar- barrister. And I remember I walked in and I looked at, and I got up and walked out, and the judge said, "Oh." Where you go, Mr. Lloyd? And said, mate, I've had a hell of a life. I'm not going to listen to these jokers. I'm going out and you can call me back when you're ready. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> and was that a bit heartbreaking that, that they would go against you like that? Oh, I didn't like those two people anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, basically, they were dicks. So it was fine then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did it give you more determination, though, to yeah run faster and and prove all these people wrong yeah definitely it just gave you more motivation to try and be the best you can now i lost about 15 percent use of my ankle so i still wasn't 100 percent, but i gave what i could and i sometimes i have a good race and sometimes i wouldn't have a bad race you know i must add i don't know how many operations between 85 and 90 and uh 1990 i think i had about eight ops in between that time that's always hard to get back Mm especially the drugs they put into you and start to knock you around, especially when I was about 54 kilos race weight. Yeah. I'm bloody 72 now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fat bastard. Oh, you're still doing all right, mate. You're still looking all right. <laughs> well, that must have been hard too to keep the surgeries and then trying to get back, whereas people don't realise yeah. training to, to get to an elite level, it's, it's just yeah. so tough when you've got no injuries, let alone going in and um, having operation after operation. Yeah, I know. I almost threw the towel in. Get going and have another problem, another problem. And I was, my best mate was Nick Deacastella, Rob's brother. And I said, mate, I don't think I can do this anymore. And he talked me around, so he kept me going. Yeah, so. Uh, and that was good. So pretty much you, you, you thought that's it, you couldn't handle the uh, the injuries anymore? And... Oh, it's just a pain all the time. You know, when you were racing, you would be up all night not sleeping, so. It just got to a point where, but he talked me into it and talked me into it. And I went, okay, no worries. <laughs> Here I go. <laughs> what, what did he say, though, to, to get you to keep going? I can't even remember. <laughs> 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 <Quite honest. laughs> he just gave me 
confidence and he said mate you can do this you know that, that sort of stuff and, and yeah it worked well that leads in i suppose and it's something that i've watched over and over and over. i used to be a runner when i was a kid um <laughs> and, and into my early sort of in my 20s and yeah. 30s and used to enjoy running and Mate, the, uh, the Commonwealth Games, probably one of the best races I've ever seen in my life. It's a 5K race. Now, well, let's go from the beginning. And how were you feeling leading into that race? Well, we had a couple of races beforehand. And I had a lot of good speed. And then we, we looked at my coach, Dick Telford. We looked at who was running and where we would want to be at a certain point. And uh, that's what we did, basically. I said, well... You had the world record holder, you had the Olympic champion, you had the uh, European champion, you had the bronze medalist in the uh, Olympics for the steeplechase. So I said, all right, fifth, looks good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we worked out that. So I let the guys go. There was uh, the guy who I beat, uh, the cross-country runner, Olympic champion. On a googie? No, Googie, that's it. <laughs> should, should never forget his name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can yeah, now after you've, after you've beaten him, mate. Don't worry about second place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, when he took off and then the, the uh, other two took off after him, I to, I'll leave those two because that was a bronze steeplechase champion as well out in that group. I sit in his back, back group and when it comes down to kick, I'm going to give it to him. Scored up the second group and then... All the fun, fun and work started going with about 300 to go. They started making all their moves, and that's when I tore into it. What about the time when Nagugi uh, pulled away? Well, he fell. There's a couple of falls, wasn't there, in, in yeah. that race? Oh, yeah. I had to hurdle someone. I got badly spiked down to the bone. I had blood down my legs. So, yeah, it was a, a pretty pushy sort of race. You try to avoid that, but sometimes you get caught up in it. <laughs> so were you surprised? Because I think Nagugi fell was one of the first to fall, yeah. and it was a long way back when I look at the the, the video. Yeah. And were you surprised how quick he caught back up to you guys? I didn't even know he fell. Right, I was in front of him, and when he came past me like a <laughs> a wounded bull, <laughs> I thought, oh well, here we go. He's ready to go. I had no idea he'd fallen off. What he's just going to wind everyone up and just piss everyone off. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, I was a part of the fall when um, Yobes went down. And I think it was Jack Buckner was with him, I think. Yeah. That's what I heard of both of them. I got spiked pretty badly. Then I kept on going. I only knew those two people fell over. Right. Uh, and does that really throw your race if you do fall? Like if you fall? Oh, yeah, it does a bit. It does. If you can get up quick and get going without thinking too much, you're okay. <laughs> you don't want to dwell on it. You just want to try and get back up and go chase the next person as close as possible. So when these guys broke away and they, they were so far ahead, hmm. did you think, oh, they're gone, I'm just going to, as the plan was at the start of the race, I'm, I'm just going to hang on, I'm, I'm looking at fifth place here? Yeah, I was doing that most of the race until we caught that second bunch and I thought, oh, hang on, I could probably get a, a bronze here. And when that broke up and they started kicking down, I went, oh, yeah, this is okay. I think Nagugi was so far ahead, I thought, oh, I'm going to run out of runway for him before I get to the finish line. But I belted and, and like my first coach, Stu McNeil, he always said, the race is never won until you cross that line. So I ran as hard as I possibly could to get to that line and uh, I just made it. <laughs> it was a good feeling, but the, I don't know, after I finished that race, 
it just felt like the whole weight on my shoulders had been lifted off. Mm. Just felt so relaxed <laughs> for some reason. Oh, mate, it's an amazing race. And mm. did you think, like, did you get a second wind on that last, probably around, what, the 200 metres to go? Yeah, I had a, I kicked and then I kicked again. So I was lucky I had a double kick. So I can hit the full and then you can run on empty for a bit. So, yeah, I fell it down and really hammered it hard, left the other guys <laughs> behind. <laughs> So what about the, the last 100 and you were catching Nagugi? Did you, what point did you think, geez, oh, I'm going to get him here? Not until about oh, five metres from the line. Yeah. <laughs> That's how close it was. So, uh, yeah, didn't think I was going to get him at first, but uh, I had no idea what I'd done in that race either, right, until they took me back to the studio. And I think I said the F word when I was watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe what I'd done when I saw it. So. Yeah, it was an amazing time, a great memory, and uh, yeah, something I'll never forget. Would you put that down as the your, your best race you, you've ever done? That and winning the City to Surf in 1985 with the pins and bolts on my ankle, and that was from my late wife, Lynn. So those two races, yeah, definitely. And with... Uh... Running, it's something that, uh, you know, a lot of people can't run fast, but you seem to have that extra speed when you need it, even though you're doing a longer distance. Yeah, I always had a good kick. If they wanted to get rid of me, they had to really run me hard into the ground. But if I was still there with a lap to go and Monas knows that, I could put 10 seconds into it. So they used to try and shake me. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, I think you're either born with it or not. That's the other thing. And, uh I have a massive stride when I get going, and I can really pick up the speed. So, yeah, I think I was just uh, born with it, basically. Yeah, natural runners, natural yeah. runner. How do you compare, which you can't really compare eras, but do you still follow the running and, and follow oh. the younger guys coming through? Oh, yeah, mate. I, I run with my mate, uh, Greg Hoare. He's the Olive, Oliver Hoare's uh, dad. We run every, uh, well, most days, when we say run, it's uh, the soccer mums run past us. They say fast, so we go <laughs> these days. But yeah, I still follow them, and uh, even when I retired, I run Goo Energy Gels, or the nutrition company, and I've sponsored athletes runners over the years as well. So, but yeah, I always watch the uh, Diamond Leagues on TV. I'm madly trying to watch the uh, Commonwealth Games now, and when the uh, track and fields that all just started yesterday which is uh, good. But, yeah, I still follow athletics and that, and I still enjoy it. And like I can say, oh, I love going running, even though I've got a, I've got a false knee now. <laughs> I've got a hamstring uh, uh, bolted to me backside as well, So, but I still like to go. So, yeah, it's always going to be in my blood. Yep, yeah, no, that's great. Now, did you ever get into coaching at all? Yeah, I did. I Before I had kids, of course. <laughs> Since we had twins and that, that put a kibosh and everything, it was too hard. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, coached uh, a guy called James Barker who made the Australian cross country team. No charge at all. Just come down. I had a lot of triathletes coming down. You know, oh, some of the top triathletes used to come down, the girls and the and I used to show them how to do the sprints and runs and basically pick up their speed cadence on their stride and be more efficient with their running. And was that a, a satisfaction, even though helping out these these younger girls and, and the guys? And... Yeah. Yeah, it was a great time. It was more social as well, which is great. And uh, 
it made me want to get down the track and train as well. So it gave me some sort of motivation to get there. So, so yeah, I think we used to have 30-odd people and stuff. Even Bill Harrigan used to come down with his refs and train with us. <laughs> so, so good group, not very official or anything, just turn up and this is what we're doing. And, and then I'll just point out a few style problems with some of them and that was basically it. Have you noticed have the times changed that much since you were running with you know, in that, that 5K and, and 10K? Yeah, yeah, they're getting faster and faster. The tracks are getting better. And like in my day, the old guys were on cinders and grass and then we got the tartan. Then came along the Rekatan and then the shoes got better. You know, and now you've got these super fly shoes with the carbon and stuff. That all makes a difference. And then also they've got all these other recovery equipment now with the hydro tents where you get the extra oxygen and the compression pads and stuff, all this stuff we never had. So yeah, it's, it's just getting more and more technical, which is good. It makes the athlete last longer, I suppose. <laughs> well, it probably would. It probably helped, mm. I suppose, the, the injuries and and been able to back up and, and do another session mm. the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's We talked to uh, Oliver Hall, who's the 1,500-metre run. He ran the Australian uh, mile record, 3.47 in Europe. He's got the the breathing tents, the altitude tent, the compression, gets a massage every second day. <laughs> uh, and he's in a complete cocoon sort of thing with a training group, uh, the ONS running group it is. And so they've got all these elite athletes, the shoe company's got all these guys together, they train together, they get flown to different places. It's a great way of living and uh, he's got a great life and a great future to come his way for sure. Do you wish all that was around when you were running at your peak? No, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> yeah, look at you guys, yeah. You would have had wooden surfboards in those days. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, you got the fiberglass super lightweight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember starting running and, and running in the uh, Dunlop volleys. Oh, that's, yes, that's what I you used did to that. run in. You did that yeah. as well? <laughs> Dunlop volleys and uh, Adidas Rome. They all gave you blisters. <laughs> They were shocking. Yeah, you might, the, well, uh, you might as well just run barefoot on the concrete. Yeah, well, I did in the cross country running barefoot. It, just, it was better. <laughs> uh, that was the days. And then all the new shoes started coming out. Tiger G9, a super lightweight, flexible shoe, bugger all cushioning. <laughs> but geez, you could run fast, didn't it? <laughs> Pay the price later. But then Nike came along with all the cushion shoes. You know, it all started changing and evolving. Like I was talking to some of the old guys who used to run marathons. They used to be running ballet shoes with a sole put on them. So that's where they came from. Really? Jeez, wow, that would have been, uh, yeah, yeah, not much cushioning at all, would it? For, for, no. To run a 40, yeah, 42k. 42k on the concrete, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all changed. It keeps on changing. The swimming pool, same thing with the, well, they yeah. got rid of the suits, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they got rid of those. They got rid of the suits. Where's it going to stop with, the, with breaking records? Do you think it's, you know, how fast can they actually get? Well, I can, they can still go, yeah. still go. It just takes the right, right person in the right place and the right body type. But you stand Bolt. He was a tall, strong. He had the muscles to cope with his body. He was a perfect example of being a sprinter. And you just watched him. He's just magic. And even most of the time, he just backed off half the time. Even when he broke a world record, he was backing off. He could have gone further. But he was a perfect person for that event. And there's going to be... Perfect people for different events. Yeah, it'll keep on going. Someone will be born, you know, 20 years later and bingo, they start knocking off the records. Who um, do you think currently is someone that you really like watching in the running and 
you think they've really got a, a good future in, in the sport? Oliver Hoare. He's got the double kick. He's got the great stride. He's got a body type. He's tall, he's strong, and he's got the muscles to cope with it. So he's got to learn to race a little bit better than he does and get himself in the right spot. And he's starting to do that now. So it's just evolving. You learn from your bad races and you make the race better next time. So, And he's doing that. He's got a good future. Uh, you got Max Swain, who's beaten Ollie a couple of times, but he's only got one speed. He's got no kick. He's got to run him off the ground. And that's what Ron Clark used to do, run him off the ground. But if they're still with you and you're going to have to have a kick finish, you're gone. That's the difference. And is that, you said earlier, that that was maybe a natural thing? You can't, mm. can you train to get that kick or you think it's more a natural ability? You can train to improve yourself a bit, but to be at the top, you really have to be born with that sort of speed. You, the, the ability to have that muscle type, you know, you've got a, a slow and fast twitch. You can get a bit of a combination of both, more fast and a little bit slow, then you're okay, yeah. How long, you know, you, as you said, you love running every day. So you'll just keep running as, until your legs won't carry you anymore? Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> I like running with your mates and putting shit in it, <laughs> putting <laughs> rubbish on each other and... Uh, it's a good social thing. It's just, you know, you chill out for an hour or so and forget what's going on around the world and you enjoy yourself and come back relaxed. But from being so competitive, are you still competitive even though you're uh, just in a social environment? Uh, only with me, mates. <laughs> 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 uh, if they're not with me, I go to a road race or something, just mucking around. I'll, I'll just muck around. But if they're there, I'll just wind them up and try, <laughs> try and beat them. <laughs> just hang in and give them and, and just have that kick. You know, yeah, that, that, that kick's long gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely long gone. No right, mine has too. I struggle <laughs> now running. <laughs> well, mate, Lloydy, it's great you know, having you in the beach shack and, and talking mm. about your running career, the old stories that, uh, you know, some people out there probably never even heard of, and it's it's great you're uh, chatting all about it. But uh, at the end of the interview, I do uh, a segment called Five Fun Facts, so I'm just going to throw right. some questions at you, mate. You can... Uh, Answer them whichever way you like. All right, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Favourite childhood memory? Ooh, jeez, that's going back. Jeez, um, probably when my parents bought me a packet of Smarties when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have much chocolate in those days. <laughs> Mate, favourite takeaway food? Oh, in those days it would have been uh, McDonald's in those days, but McDonald's has gone downhill. <laughs> They're shocking now. <laughs> What are you most proud of? Uh, well, it's Commonwealth Games. I think winning the Commonwealth Games is a great thing and also getting a, an OAM as well. That was amazing too. I didn't expect that. Actually, I thought I was in trouble when I got this letter. <laughs> official government-looking letter. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> but what's something your brain tries to make you do and you have to? Oh, it tries to tell me to stretch, but uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> I hate stretching. I hate stretching. No, I don't like it either. Is that something that – did you do it in your uh, the peak of your running or you just didn't really stretch much at all? I did what I reasonably had to. <laughs> <laughs> I never went overboard on it, put it that way. <laughs> I was just bored out of it. You know, it's just, oh, geez, come on, I want to move. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, is a, it, it is a frustrating part it is. of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just want to get out and run and not – you know, they want you stretch yeah. for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and yeah. it just drags yeah. on. Yeah, it is a pain. 
Mate, uh, what scene from a TV show uh, will you never forget? Uh, well, just a movie, The Train Spotters, when he chose life. That always yeah. brings back to me. Yeah, Guy chose life. <laughs> I wasn't going to wallow in my own misery. I want to get off my ass and do something. Mm. Mate, that's just a great um, perspective, isn't it? I, I think mm. a lot of the young kids need to take that perspective too. And it's, you know, mm. a lot of people I find these days just give up too easy. Oh, I yeah, they just want to blame the whole world, but they won't help themselves. That's the problem. You know, it's up to you to get off your ass and do something. Yeah. You know, some people can help you on the way, but you've got to get off your ass and do it yourself. You've got to have that, I want to do it. And do you think sport helps that? Sport really gets people motivated. And you can get into something and get addicted to it, can't you, with sport? Yeah, yeah well, that's a great thing about sport, you know. It, it brings out the best in people. And sometimes the worst if you're a spectator and yelling at the kids. <laughs> I've seen that too. But, but it does bring out the best in people and it gives them a, a, another social life, another aspect in their life. I enjoyed it when we started running. We had a little group and we used to go to all these ro- uh, road races all over the place, just a big group of us, and uh, it was a social event as well. It's not only just a race. So you've got to have that social aspect in everything you do. Yeah, mate, you're 100% right. Well, Lloydie, it's a, a privilege to have you in the beach shack and chatting to you. You're a legend of the sport and, uh, mate, I'm glad you're uh, out there and still running around. <laughs> Thanks, Hoppo. I hope to see you sometime down the Bondi, but not saving me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, mate, I won't worry about that. Uh, but we'll uh, definitely catch up down there soon, mate. And uh, City of Surf's coming up. You're not yep. down there for uh, City of Surf this year? No, no, no. I was, uh, the North Sond- Bondi Surf Club got rebuilt. They don't really have the area where we can used to go to you know, book out the tables these days. So. <laughs> Uh, I've, got, I've got other things to do on a, on that day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Uh, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, uh, Hopper. Thanks, buddy. See you, mate. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Wally. How are you, mate? Good, thanks, Hop. How are you? Good, mate. Now... As a lifeguard, we do a lot of resuscitations over the years. I remember one of your first ones was with the double drowning. How did you find that? Yeah, that was a bit of a, a rude shock to the to the job. I mean, it's it's always good to to see what it's actually about. You know, like that's 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 the job. I mean, that's that's as real as it gets. It was in my first year, and yeah, it was good to sort of get an eye opener like that. I mean, it was yeah, like I said, a shock to the system at the time. But yeah, you learn a lot from that. And, it's only a positive now that I look back at it. I mean, getting to experience that and then going into another uh, circumstance like that down at the beach, it's only going to help. Uh, yeah, it makes you just know what to expect kind of thing and you go into it a little bit more prepared. Um, so, yeah, it was yeah, it was a lot to take in in my first 12 months there, but, I mean, uh, I, I knew in the back of my mind that's what the job was. So, yeah, it's all good. Well, it's tough... Um come into a double one because i mean it's rare we get a double drowning at the same time generally yeah. just get the one and the one you know person to recess but this yeah. one was like you know you had one group of one part of the beach and and just a you know 50 meters down the beach is another recess and yeah you know everyone was coming from everywhere and you find you people just seem to turn up from from wherever yeah it's true i mean uh on that day we had a great team of lifeguards with a lot of experienced lifeguards there so it, it almost didn't affect us in the sense that there was two things going on. I mean, the guys there really knew how to manage what to do. So, um, I mean, you had 
Corey there, you had like uh, Box and you had bloody Singo, you had, yeah, you had a good team there. And Chapo was even working on the uh, the camera crew for uh, Bondo Rescue. So he was there. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of experience there that day, which, it's, yeah, it was good for me to be able to just follow those guys. And, and um, yeah, it looked like they always knew what they were doing the whole way through. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing the help that you get on those kind of things. And you, you don't realise until you, you reassess afterwards that, yeah, a lot of people come from nowhere for for those kinds of kinds of incidents. Yeah. And you find it how quick things happen and, and how much you need to prioritise when you're going through a resuscitation. Uh yeah. There's there's a lot that's going on. I mean the main thing is just what what you've got to do next. I mean, you, you can't think too far in front of you of what's going on. I mean, you just look at what you have to do at that moment, so whether it's getting the person on the board and getting them in back to shore, that's that's the only thing you can think about at that time. Um, otherwise, you just get a, your head, your brain and your head just become spaghetti and you don't know what you're actually thinking about. So I think that's something that I've learned, just to think about what you actually need to do at that moment and then, uh, yeah, just assess as you go. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of different things that can happen at once. I mean, yeah, we're, we're only human. We can only assess as much as possible. And then after this happens, how do you uh, sort of wind down and, and relax after something that's you know, so traumatic? Yeah, it, it actually takes a lot more out of you than, you, than you'd think. I mean, I only realised that after experience. It. I mean, I just felt really drained for a couple of days, just flat. So I just tried to keep, keep into my usual routine of exercise and all that and just keep it simple, nothing too hard, but, yeah, just trying to level out all the the chemicals and levels in, in your body that you just don't realise having an effect when you, you deal with something like that. So, um, yeah, I just tried to keep it simple for a few days and up to a week and then just, yeah, I, I got back to normal pretty quickly. Yeah. It was all good. We've got, we got some uh, good help down there at the beach with, you know, counselling and talking to people and stuff. So, it's, yeah, it's all good. And you find talking to people, it does help, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's just no point in keeping it inside. I mean, all the guys there, they've all... They know what you're talking about, so like, there's no point not talking to them, you know. So it only helps to, to get it out and chat, and they might have a different perspective on it than what than what you had. And then, yeah, it's it's a very positive thing just talking about it. And that's what we're trying to do with a lot of other, you know, especially the young people listening to this podcast. They all have their issues through their life, but trying to get people to speak about them, it's uh, it can be quite difficult. And that's something that we've started to do over the years. I remember when I first started as a lifeguard, mm. I used to get a pat in the back and, oh, you'll, you'll be sweet and yeah. off you go and that's it. But, you know, I think it's a, a lot better now when we talk to each other. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we've just seen from firsthand how beneficial it is just to sit down as a group and have a chat. And, I mean, yeah, it goes for any circumstance that you're in in life, I suppose. If you've, if you've got a community and a network around you, it's only going to be a positive thing. Um, yeah, just having a chat about whatever it is that's on your mind, it's always... It's always a positive thing. Okay, Wally, mate, it's great having you in the beach shack and uh, keep up the good work, mate, down there as a lifeguard. You're doing a, a fantastic job. Uh, legend hot. Thanks. It's good to be here. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.